Good afternoon. I'm Deb Tyson. I'm the Vocational Service Representative on the Rotary Board of Directors, and I have the honor of introducing our speaker for today's Educational Day at Rotary. As President of Ferris State University, Dr. Eisler is one of the biggest cheerleaders for our community. As an educator and administrator at Big Rapids Public Schools, I've been given many opportunities to be a part of Ferris State University and have seen how passionate he is about our schools and our community. Having said that, I believe it is very fitting for Dr. Eisler to speak to our educators and Rotarians today as he continues to advocate for Big Rapids and the community as a whole. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce President David Eisler. Thank you, Deb. Can you hear me in the back? Okay, if you can't, just kind of go like this and I'll talk a little bit louder. Uh, Steve, thank you for this wonderful idea of, of saluting educators today. I think it's just an excellent, excellent piece. Uh, and, you know, when I think about Rotary and I think about Paul Harris, and you think about what's grown out of, out of Rotary and all the things you're involved with, I'm really reminded of Woodbridge Ferris. And one of the things that we cherish about his statements was that the purpose of the Ferris Institute was to make the world a better place. So I think the parallels between what you try to do in Rotary and the things that we try to do with our university are direct and very parallel. I, I want to thank everybody who's an educator, who's present. And one of the things I'd encourage you to do is to think back on your career and the success that you've had. And my guess is that somewheres there's a teacher that you should be thanking for, for that opportunity. And uh, maybe you've had that opportunity where your child came home and said, my teacher said, and all of a sudden you realize that there was a new authority in your home that maybe surpassed your own uh, input. The importance of education has never been greater in our country right now. Uh, uh, People look at it as the potentially the competitive advantage that we need to have as a country to be economically competitive. So a lot of emphasis is placed upon education. If you follow the foundations, and the largest of these is the Lumina Foundation, they've set a goal that for our country, that by the year 2025, 60% of our country will have some sort of post-secondary credential. And to give you an idea of what that means for us as a country, right now, in the United States, about 38.7% of our country has some sort of post-secondary education. In Michigan, we're a bit under the national average. We're at 36%. And here in Macosta County, we're at 30.54%. Uh, so when you think about those goals and the idea that we're going to try to be nationally competitive, I think you begin to really worry about how that would be. Because when you look at these these studies, what you discover is that uh, the United States isn't number one in the world in terms of educational attainment. And if you take statistics that I think are probably the most, the most kind to us as a country, what you'll see is age 25 to 64, we're about fourth in terms of the percentage of our population that has some sort of post-secondary credential. But the area of concern is if you look at our youngest people who had the opportunity, people... 25 to 34, what you'll discover is that we rank 13th, and I think that's somewhere between uh, Switzerland, Switzerland and England, I believe, something like that. 
There are some pieces that even show us as low as 21st, and that's tied with Luxembourg. So this idea that we are the most educated country in the world is rapidly becoming less and less true. Now, it is true that we have the finest system of education in the world, but the simple fact is that other countries have made education a higher priority than we have. And this becomes even a more a greater concern for me when I think about the demographics that we see in the future. Uh, right now, if you look at things in terms of ethnic groupings, the educational attainment among Caucasians is 43%. Among African Americans, it's 27%. And amongst Hispanics, it's 19%. And if you begin to project out how our demographics are going to change in this country, uh, in 1960, 81% of the children in our country were Caucasian. In 2005, 59% were Caucasian. And in 2050, and whenever I get to 2050, I always have to kind of pause and mentally try to figure out how old I'll be at that point. Uh, the Caucasians will be 40% of our population. Caucasian children will be 40% of our population. If you look at the difference with Hispanic children, in 1960, it was 5.2% of the children. In 2005, it was 20%. And in 2050, it'll be 35%. The other pieces in 2050, African-Americans will be 14% and Asians will be 10%. And when you look at our success in educating some ethnic minorities, the challenges become even greater than trying to sustain what we have now. And I think, in my mind, this is really a simple equation for our country. We can either educate people or we can support people. And we can make that choice as, as, as a citizenry, as members of this state. And to place that in perspective, what do you think it costs our state to incarcerate an inmate every day? It's $100 a day. $100 a day. That's the cost to send someone to jail. And when I think about education... Uh, I'm reminded of H.L. Mencken. He has this wonderful quote that says, for every complex problem, there is a solution that's simple, neat, and wrong. <laughs> so if you're, if you're in education, there are lots of people who think they understand how you do your work better. And it typically tends to be a one-size-fits-all, simplistic approach that really ignores that we're working with people and that every person is different. Now, I'm wondering if as a parent you've ever had a note come home to you from a teacher. And I'd like to read you some of these notes that went home to, to, to some people. This first one was about a seven-year-old schoolboy. And it said, as a seven-year-old schoolboy, this young man is hopeless. His brain is addled and is useless for him to attend school. The second one Although he has had only four months of school, he is very good with studies, but is a daydreamer and asks foolish questions. The third one, he is a unique member of the class. He's 10 years old, is only just beginning to read and write. He showed signs of improving, but you must not set your sights too high on him. And the fourth one, he is a very poor student. He's mentally slow, unsociable, and is always daydreaming. 
He's spoiling it for the rest of the class. It would be best if we were removed from the school at once. Now, who was that first child, the seven-year-old boy with the addled brain? That was Thomas Edison, inventor of the phonograph, the light bulb, motion pictures, and the holder of 1,093 patents. Who was doing well with studies after four months of school but daydreamed and asked foolish questions? That was Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president of the United States. Uh, who was the, the one who was only 10 years old and just beginning to show signs of improvement, couldn't read yet? That was the 28th president of the United States, Woodrow Wilson. And who should have been removed from class because he was mentally slow, unsociable, and a very poor student? That was Albert Einstein, the father of modern physics and winner of the 1921 Nobel Prize. I think one of the things you know if you're in this room and you're a teacher is that people learn at different times, at different ways, and at different points in their life. And if you've been a teacher, you've looked at some students who've been in your class and you really had not wonderful projections of what their future might be. And those have, in time, proven to be some of the most successful graduates you've ever taught. And you know, in thinking about Albert Einstein, I found this wonderful quote by him. It says, imagination is more important than knowledge. Knowledge is limited to what we know and understand, while imagination embraces the entire world and all there ever will be to know and to understand. I think that's one of the challenges of education is people want to reduce it to a test, to a set of facts, to, to a body of knowledge. And that's not what education is about. Certainly it's a part of what we do, but education is really encouraging people to think, to dream, to imagine. And when you think about the places where perhaps you've had the most success in your life, it wasn't because you know that Columbus sailed the world in 1492 was because you knew how to analyze a problem and how to communicate with someone and how to solve something that was very, very difficult. That's the challenge for us in education. And when I think about education, this is really an integrated system. And I, I want to talk about the different pieces that I think are, are integrated in the education system if I can. Now, I want to start with preschool. And I'm kind of curious, how many people in this room went to preschool? All right. As you look around the room, you'll see that those are indeed the younger people in this room, isn't it? <laughs> so many of us who maybe aren't quite that same age, we didn't have the opportunity to go to preschool. And preschool may be a concept that we're not terribly familiar with. And it was something that, that, I've, that I've learned about in the last couple of years because I've been, become absolutely convinced that Preschool education is really the core of how a student begins their learning, learning opportunities. And there's a professor at Harvard who has researched this, and he's tested children when they're a year and a half, and then when they're four years old. And candidly, I didn't know that you could test a year and a half old children or that you'd be able to do a longitudinal study with them when they turned four. But this is what he, this is what he discovered. When you test children at age one and a half, they test almost identically with no difference between the home situation that they come from. But when you get to four years old, four years old, 
that children who come from uneducated families where people have not had the benefit of education, that those children can already be 50 percent behind the children who come from families that have education. I was stunned to think about the difference that can be there. And you think about a child beginning kindergarten unprepared, starting 50% behind the other children in the class. What does that mean for that teacher? How do they bring those people together? And so, you know, when there was an opportunity to invest in kindergarten, to invest in, in preschool, people came to me and said, how do you feel about higher education losing this money to preschool? And I said, we're not losing any money at all. If, if these children don't learn when they're preschool, they'll never be our students. And so I think when you look at this, this cycle of education, I think it really begins with preschool. And every child should have the opportunity of preschool so that they enter kindergarten prepared if their parents want them for that. And then I think about the challenges that our colleagues have who are in the K through 12 system. And I think about the expectations that are placed upon them. I was sitting with uh, a couple uh, business leaders at our Talent 2025 uh, meeting last Thursday, and they were talking about what they find with the, the people that they employ in China in their factories. And what happens is when a person gets a good paying job with them, usually a young man, what that means is that that person can get an apartment. And when they get an apartment, that person can get married and then they have one child because that's what you're allowed to do in China. And then the most other amazing thing happens is his parents move in and her parents move in because that's a nicer place than anyone else had to live in. And then think about the environment for that child because at that point, that child has six parents working with them in that home. In our state, 46% of the students that are in the public schools have only one parent. Our schools cannot be a substitution for parents. And if you've raised children, you understand how important the work is that you do in, at, in the home, reading to your children, helping them, helping them with their studies, asking them what they learned at school that day. And so one of the challenges that you experience in K through 12 education is children who come from families where they don't get that support in school. And I'm going to come back to that in a little bit, but I think you begin to see the, the similarities. And, oh, by the way, what was the amount that we pay for an inmate in $100 a day? Where's Tim? Tim, where are you? You know what Tim gets for, for every student in his school from the state? About $19 a day. So we spend five times as much to put somebody in prison as we do for them to go to school. You have to wonder how that value equation goes. And you think about all the demands that are placed upon our schools in terms of the things that, that have to happen with our students, the tests that they're undergone, the, the expectations that are placed upon them, the diminishing resources they have to work with. It's really a daunting challenge. We'll move on to college. Uh, and when, when I think about what we try to do at Ferris, our, our model is that we want every student who comes to us to have a great, a great core of their education. You need to be able to think. You need to be able to communicate. You need to have that core of an education that's a part of every educated person's background. 
And then what we try to do is we try to prepare students for a career. So when they graduate, they're prepared to be successful in that career. And I think there's two more pieces that don't get as much oppressed, but are just important for us. One is that we want that student to be prepared for lifelong learning because the reality is most of what we do every day are things we've learned since we stopped going to school. So they have to be prepared to learn for that lifelong education. And then we want them to be great citizens so that wherever they, they go to live, that that community is better because they went to Ferris State. And that's, that's kind of our dream for our students. Uh, but I find that many people don't understand the challenges that our students have and that the students in the K through 12 system have. One of the things I do at commencement is I tell students stories. It's because the pomp and circumstance, people begin to focus on what I think aren't the most important pieces. Commencement is the story of individual achievement. It's what students achieve against immeasurable odds. And this is the young lady that I visited with this week. She grew up in a family of two alcoholics. When she was in junior high school, her, what she was trying to do was to hold her family together because her parents were not sober enough to raise them as children. When she was a junior in high school, she had a 1.9 GPA. At that point, uh, she was taken away from her parents. She and her, her, her brother were taken away from their parents. Uh, she was placed in foster care. And she, she earned a 4.0 that senior year and she made the decision to come to Ferris. As she was making that decision to come to Ferris, her father committed suicide. She came to us, and you think about how hard that first year must have been, uh, coming from a, a background that was so fractured, uh, knowing that you know her father had committed suicide, her mother was still very much an alcoholic. Uh, and she said, my first year was so hard. You know, I struggled so much, but she connected with the university and she did well. And then she was able to reunite with her mother. And as she reunited with her mother, her foster parents disowned her because she'd gone back to her mother. Uh, this, this young lady's going to graduate, uh, two weeks from now. And she's, she's reunited her mother with her foster parents. She's the first person in that family to come to college. That's the story of educational achievement. And that's what you miss when you talk about numbers and statistics and tests. You miss the real human drama that schools and teachers have to deal with every single day. It isn't just learning those facts. It's taking people who come from the most desperate of circumstances, who don't have the advantages that many of our children had when they went to college. So you think about that, that challenge. As I think about how we all work together, we need to think less about institutions and we need to think more about students. One of the things that we're actively doing is we're working with, with high schools so that talented high school students can take college classes while they're still in high school. It's, it's a piece that I, I'm very much committed to. It reduces time to degree. It addresses student debt. And I was interested in how many students we were teaching who were high school students this semester. Now, we have 14,700 students at Ferris. 750 of those are high school students who are taking college classes right now, and I'm really quite proud of that. Uh, but if you think about this circle, cycle, we, we teach people to be teachers. 
at Ferris. We teach people to be great citizens and they go out and they're parents. The people that we educate as teachers go out and they work in your schools and they educate the children of our graduates and your, your children and grandchildren also. And then we want them to have a great experience because they're going to turn around and come right back to us as students. So when you think about this, we're all doing the same thing. And what we do is we change people's lives. That's what we do. We give them the opportunity of education that changes their life. Now, when I look at the future, there are a lot of challenges out there. And if, if you're in the education sector, you love challenges because one of the challenges you have every day is trying to figure out how to motivate that person in front of you to learn. And uh, there's no greater profession than being a teacher. There just, there just isn't. You, just, you shape people's lives when you're a teacher. But here's what we face. There's an information glut out there. And there's more information available on the device clipped to your, to your, to your belt than, than people saw in several lifetimes. One week of the New York Times is the equivalent of a whole lifetime of education in, in the 1800s. One week of the New York Times. That's the amount of information. So the challenge for us is from this glut of information, how do we decide what's important? How do we manage breadth and depth so that, so that students get a great education, knowing that there's no possible way to cover that? We do this in a time of diminished resources. Oh, what was the amount that it cost for an inmate? A hundred dollars. What we get at Ferris for a student a day is nine dollars and twenty-six cents. So as a state, we invest more than ten times, actually eleven times, more in an inmate every day than we invest in a college student. Those are the decisions we've made as a state. We have a declining population. Since 2005 to today, the, the, percent, the number of students who are graduating from Michigan high schools has declined by 9.5%. Between now and 2022, we're going to decline by another 9.5%. So from 2009 to 2022, the number of students who are graduating from Michigan high schools is going to decline by 21%. The way I describe this is when we had the recession, people left Michigan and they took their children with them. Okay, so that's, that's what we're dealing with. So we're looking to create an educated workforce, an educated citizenry, knowing that in 2022, one-fifth the number of students will graduate from Michigan high schools that graduated in 2009. And think about what that means for the, those of you in the audience who might be thinking about retiring. Um, people look at technology and think technology is a panacea, and it's not. It's a, it's a wonderful tool, but it's nothing more than a tool. Uh, there's something magical that happens with a teacher and a group of students. That discussion is something that's really quite remarkable. And yes, online and lots of things can, can do parts of that, but there's something that happens when we communicate that truly makes a difference. And people who think that the way to do this is just to put it online and students will learn. My experience with, with online education, I taught my first online education class in the mid-90s, was that good students learn remarkably well, mature students learn remarkably well, but students who are challenged, students who have difficulty in learning, have the highest rates of default. So a lot of people have followed this, this idea of MOOCs, these massively online open courses. Do you know what the success rate in is, a, is in a MOOC? It's 9%. 9%. Is that what you want for your schools? At Ferris, 
our our success rate is a student who comes to us or transfers to us, there's an 80% chance that six years from then they'll have a degree or still be working in it. Eight out of 10 is what we do. And I think that we're all dealing with the continued breakdown of the family because young people need role examples. So I'd like you to think a little bit about what you can do to make a difference. And there are lots of things that you can do. Uh, you can volunteer in your school. Uh, I know the principals in this room, but I know that they love to have volunteers come to their schools. And you can't be so busy that you can't give an hour or two to help help a child. So begin by volunteering in your schools. Uh, if you don't have the time to volunteer, then offer yourself as a mentor. Uh, talk with the people at your high school and say, I'd love to, I'd love to have a student or two that I could mentor. And, you know, if there's some training that you want me to go through so that you're comfortable with me doing this, I'd be happy to do that. But think about how you can reach out to someone, maybe somebody who doesn't have two parents and you can be a mentor for them and help them, help them have success. And then you can support your education. I, I attend their events. You know, when there's, when there's an opportunity to support the schools, support the schools. And there are lots of opportunities. Our schools have amazing pieces. Take a couple minutes to visit the school. Meet the teachers. Meet some of the children. Offer your support as a leader in this community. Because what we do in education is we educate students and we do that one person at a time. And that's how it's done. We change one life at a time. Uh, we're a family of teachers. Uh, for us, teaching is the noblest profession that's there. Um, my wife, Patsy, is a nationally board-certified elementary teacher. When we lived in New Mexico, she was the Intel Technology Teacher of the Year. When we were leaving to go to Utah, you know, nobody really missed me, uh, you know, the, but the school board refused to allow her to resign. Uh, uh, so you know, I kind of understand how that works. And you know, ever since we were married, we've had tales of the sixth grade around around our dining room table. And my internal question was, can you have people not call at dinner time? Uh, but, you know, this teaching is a wonderful profession. And, you know, you may have heard this, this, this wonderful poem. Uh, it's by a fellow by the name of Will Allen Drumgoal. It's called The Bridge Builder. And it really expresses why I think it is what we do what we do. An old man going a lone highway came at the evening cold and gray to a chasm vast and deep and wide through which was flowing a sullen tide. The old man crossed in the twilight dim. The sullen stream had no fear for him, but he turned when safe on the other side and built a bridge to span the tide. Old man, said a fellow pilgrim near, you're wasting your strength with building here. Your journey will end with the ending day. You never again will pass this way. You've crossed the chasm deep and wide. Why build this bridge at evening tide? The builder lifted his old gray head. Good friend, in the path I have come, he said. There followed after me today a youth whose feet must pass this way. This chasm that has been as naught to me, to that fair-haired youth may a pitfall be. He, too, must cross in the twilight dim. Good friend, I am building this bridge for him. Thanks so much on this education day.